So welcome back to Blended. I'm joined by another incredible panel of guests, and today we're talking about diverse talent in the workplace and how to keep it. From labor shortages to issues around retention, I'm having more and more conversations about talent on Let's Talk Supply Chain, and it really was time to bring that conversation over to Blended. Ensuring you have diverse talent in your business could be the difference between surviving and thriving, so it's something everyone should be taking seriously. So welcome to Bryant, Meredith, Heidi, and Sugathri, who are going to share their thoughts and experiences with us today. So thank you all for joining us. Hi, Sarah. So let's get started with some introductions. Can you each tell me who you are, what you do, and how you identify? So Bryant, let's start with you. Hello, thanks for having me today. Um, my name is Bryant Miller. I am in Columbus, Ohio. Well, normally I'm in Dallas, Texas today, but I uh, identify as a cisgender, queer, gay man, uh, and uh, I'm in corporate communications in the supply chain world. Awesome. I love that. Thank you so much for joining us. Meredith, you're up next. Tell us who you are, what you do, and how you identify. Thanks, Sarah, for uh, having me. I am Meredith Singletary, and I am the head of diversity and inclusion for DHL Supply Chain in North America. I'm a cisgender straight mama of two. Uh, I spend a lot of time uh, with my family on the volleyball courts. Uh, Both of my girls uh, play a lot of volleyball and uh, really happy to be with you today. Yeah, I'm so excited that you could join us. So Meredith, we didn't exactly meet at Manifest, but I got the chance to hear you on stage talking about your journey and how you got into DEI. And that's where it inspired me to reach out to you and us to have a conversation. And here we are on Blended, just to let the audience know how some of these relationships kind of happen. Yeah, I really appreciate the invitation. I'm excited to be here. Great. Heidi, you're next. Hi, Sarah. Thanks very much for having me. Um, So I'm Heidi Hesseltine. I'm founder of the Diversity Study Group. Um, I am a Caucasian single mum to a teenage daughter, Um, live by the sea here in the UK, Uh, so on a slightly different time schedule to yourselves. Um, I identify as she or her um, and uh, I'm a straight female. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here, Heidi. You and I actually haven't even met in person, but you trusted me enough to be here today. So I'm I'm super excited for that. And last but absolutely not least, Sugathri. Welcome. Thank you, Sarah. My name is Sugathri. I'm the program director for women in supply chain research at the Digital Supply Chain Institute. My pronouns are she, her, um, and I'm very excited to be here today and be part of this conversation. Great. And what's your background? Uh, I'm an engineer by training, uh, after which I moved into the supply chain space. But more passionately, I work on designing skill training programs for women in various sectors. Nice. And I think you moved a few years ago from India. Is that right? That is true. Most of the life I've spent in India. And then I moved to U.S. like six years ago. And then I'm here I am with the Digital Supply Chain Institute from that point. Awesome. Well, you and I have been 
um, working together on the 2121 program, which is a mentorship program for women in supply chain. And I'm really excited to be part of that. So thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Well, before we dive into the heart of the show, I just wanted to spend a little bit of time setting the scene. We're hearing a lot about talent shortages, but I'm not sure exactly how true that actually is. I'm part of a large supply chain community, and I have insights into the up-and-coming generation of professionals with one of my live shows called Coming In Hot with Abby Baird. And I've got to tell you, I see a lot of talent out there. So I want to first ask all of you, what is the current landscape when it comes to talent in your uh, different sectors? Meredith, did you want to start? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we are absolutely doing a, a lot of work to make sure that we are able to attract and retain all the right talent. So, I, you know, I work or I live and work in Houston, Texas, but have responsibility across North America. And I would tell you that we have a differing landscape in different geographies. So we we absolutely find that depending on where you are, there may be uh, a little bit more or a little bit less uh, of the talent out there. I do think that um, in general, there are certain roles that we find that are really challenging to uh, find in the market. And, and I do think that ensuring that you have the right wages and the right benefits have become a really, really important piece of that. So if you're not hitting the mark on that, and then really, if your culture is not right, people are just not going to come and work for you, right? So, or they'll come and work and then they'll leave. So that that is where we've spent a lot of time focusing. Our efforts is ensuring that we uh, are doing the right things culturally and that we have the right kind of leadership in place. Um, but there's no doubt, doubt that there's a lot of competition. So, you know, I think it, it does depend on a lot of different factors. Um, and I think companies really have to kind of uh, raise the bar at everything that they're looking at to ensure that, you're able to find the talent out there. And that once you find them, by gosh, you can keep them. Yeah, I was going to say uh, culture is a huge one right now. I mean, we hear all about the great resignation and a lot of people are leaving because of culture. Now, Bryant, you were nodding your head feverishly. So I know you want to jump in here. I, I, <laughs> I like this forced participation, Sarah. Uh, <laughs> so what I was feverishly nodding to was the. Um, keeping people. And I read something the other day, and usually when I say I read something, it was probably a TikTok um, that said that anybody who's hired to check a box for a diversity hire can feel it immediately and they're going to leave. And that's, I have a really close friend who this recently just happened to in the supply chain world. Um, it's uh, It feels like the CEO really liked um, you know, young white men and was forced to hire some diversity hires and every single one of them felt it and they've all left. So I, I definitely think that was the, the part I was feverishly nodding to. Yeah, absolutely. That can be a really, really big challenge right now, you know, especially, and you can't force people into it. Like it has to be something that you want. I mean, the whole yeah. thing is inclusion, right? I mean, I want to change the word inclusion to acceptance because I think it's a much better word because inclusion means tolerance and we don't want tolerance, right? So I we're going to have an episode about this word later on, I promise you, because I think there's some good debate here. But Sugatri, what are you I mean, you're working with the next generation. I mean, what are you seeing? What are they saying? Yeah, I think 
it's not just the people I've been talking to or the, you know, young generation of supply chain professionals I'm talking to. In general, you know, the member companies of DSCI, what we've observed is the landscape is transformational. Like, you know, it's 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 transforming like never before, uh, by which what I mean is uh, the supply chain is now a strategic function directly connected with the customer. It's gained more importance and visibility than ever which uh, requires talent with multiple skills and strategy, technology, business modeling, and supply chain knowledge. Uh, So we are seeing that new generation of needs and leaders which need to evolve, who can connect all the skills. Mm -hmm. Of course, the job opening numbers are still high. I mean, uh, the great resignation is still on, not to discount it. But don't get me wrong, the numbers are record high last month. But however, I see this as an act of balancing. You know, people have left. Uh, but what do companies need to do in terms of getting them back? Maybe the focus is now more on um, future model of work, as it will directly impl- uh, implicate the interest of the workforce to join, to stay, and grow in a company, and the you know, and in the company's future. So, and then you know about re-engagement with the folks who've taken a break due to shifted and realized priorities. And so, you know, we know that there's a gap, right? We know that that a lot of companies are hiring, but mm-hmm. are the the students or the next generation of, of supply chain that you're working with, mm-hmm. are they having a challenge getting into a position? I I think they're having a challenge finding a company which suits their value. Ah, interesting. Okay. Uh, the brand value of the company is very important. I mean, uh, here we at DSCI, we look at every uh, aspect in a traditional frame versus digital frame. And talent is talent used to be purchased by the organization, but the new generation of the folks, I call them new employee. I think the organizations need to sell their employment brand to them and they're not selling enough. So that's where I think the mismatch is happening. uh, Sarah, as you pointed out, there are a lot of great people out there uh, uh, and the companies need to kind of uh, expand on their employment brand and meet their uh, requirements of their employees. Interesting. Thank you. Heidi, now, a lot has changed since you and I fell into the supply chain industry, <laughs> and you especially in maritime. I mean, maritime's been hugely male-dominated part of our industry. So talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing. Um, I think we're seeing, so in terms of picking up on the point that Sugathri mentioned there, I think it's very much at the moment, it's actually a, a real candidate-driven employee market. Yeah. Um, and it's really, it, it's absolutely essential that organisations are pitching themselves right. But for us in Maritime, it goes much broader than that. It's the industry needs to be positioning itself better because we're seen as being quite a dirty end of the sector, to be honest. And and. We don't do very well at selling ourselves. So people don't understand the breadth of roles available in the first place. Um, yeah, we yeah. really work in a very secretive way historically. So we're trying to encourage transparency, better communication across the industry. And I think it's for us, if you're looking for people who have maritime skills, the talent is there. You have real challenges in people getting them to move, particularly for lateral moves. So you've got to have something. And I've seen people making decisions based on what the brand represents, what the company represents. People are looking for way more than just a salary and a financial offering. They're looking for that value and for a level of appreciation. And so that's one of the big changes that we're seeing. 
I think the biggest challenge we have is we're going through a big transformation when it comes to technology, when it comes to environmental issues and governance. So we need to be bringing in swathes of new talent and we're just not set up to be attractive compared to other sectors at the moment. So you can find that new talent, but you've got to have really skilled recruiters, for example, partnering with you to actually be really selling your brand or for organisations directly themselves to be selling their brand in the market and conveying not just the job, but the story of who we are. And this is where we want to go. And I think that's critical. Meredith. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point that you both uh, make. It, and one of the things that it makes me think about is what I would view as the good news about this, right? So I think a lot of people view it as such a huge challenge, but this culture work, it's really hard to change a culture. And especially in an industry that has historically been very male dominated and maybe not one that has focused as much on DEI, this is an opportunity for us to really show the business case behind why we have to have these cultures, right? And mm-hmm. the fact that we have uh, so many um, you know, leaders that are, in, you know, that sometimes haven't learned as much maybe about diversity and inclusion. And when you can say the next generation of talent, this is one of the top five things they're looking for in recruiting. This is something that is, uh, you know, top of mind for them, and they they are interested in it, and they want it in a company. It it is a driver for your leadership to understand this is important, and this is something that we need to focus on because otherwise they're not going to have anyone to do the work for their customers, right? So if you, if we can flip it on its head a little bit, it does give us a great opportunity to to really do this culture work. Yeah, and I th- I think you bring just just one one thing. Um, I think you bring up a really good point around HR being able to create the business case and drive the the change from within and really showcase why it's important. I mean, we're talking about retention today. And the only way you're going to retain them is that you be you are the company that you say that you are when they come to work for you, right? That's and right. and you I figure think figure it out very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, and I think Heidi made a great point about recruiters. It, it really makes a huge difference as to who you're working with, what their knowledge is, and how they're helping you to drive the change internally as well, because they need to be a partner in that. Heidi, I know you wanted to jump in. No, I think it is really important that they are a partner in it as well. Um, and I think it comes back to also, you know, touching what, what Meredith was saying there as well. When you're talking about that business case internally, one of the things we've been talking about, so obviously shipping and maritime is really immature in its DEI journey, mm. which, as Meredith says, actually gives you an amazing opportunity to try and move things and perhaps learn from other sectors more advanced. But some of the conversations we're having to have for organisations who are not yet convinced by the need for DEI and I'm laughing as I say that because I still can't quite believe that we're, we're in that place, but we are, um, is actually about this is about managing your risk. So it comes into, you know, it's not just about the fact that it actually it's the correct thing to do morally and socially. It's also convincing them of the business case to do it and the leaders to do it. So but to support HR as well, but it can't just sit on HR's shoulders. So the conversation we're having is, well, how do you mitigate the risk if you don't do anything? So we're trying to also turn that conversation on its head a little bit to get some more engagement and buy-in and awareness raising, 
because yeah. we're at such an early stage of this for for the most part, not not across the board. Well, and I think earlier you said that, you know, supply chain isn't necessarily that sexy industry that everybody's sort of, they are learning about it in college or university, but you still got majors in accounting, maybe legal, that kind of thing that are really grabbing a lot of the talent. However, I want to change the thinking on that because supply chain really touches every single one of those majors. And there's a lot of people that have gone through an accounting major, a legal major, like anything to do with, you know, accounting, legal, all of those things we need in supply chain. And so I think we really need to think outside of the box as well when it comes to colleges and universities in the fact that we need to start talking about supply chain along with these other majors. Because I had a friend of mine reach out to me on Instagram and she's like, she's in finance and she's like, I just joined a logistics company and I don't know anything about supply chain. And I was like, go to the website. We've got a lot of content. And then she wrote back and said, yes, thank you so much much because I was able to learn about the industry. And so we're getting a lot of talent coming from outside of the industry for a lot of the functions that need to understand what we do because we are such a strategic function like Sugathri was was talking about. And so I think, you know, I always talk about collaboration being the future of business. <laughs> I think this is a good, also a good business study in the fact that we need to partner with those with those um other aspects of the industry to really drive the story of supply chain and what is available, you know, what the opportunities are. Um, and yeah, so anyways, that's that's just something I wanted to throw in there. But I want to ask you guys the second question, are talent shortages and labor shortages actually two different things? Now, I don't know who wants to answer this. Meredith, you might have an answer to this. Because um, I kind of think they are two separate things in the fact that, well, I don't know. You you tell me. Uh, well, certainly, I, I think I know where you're, you're heading with that, right? So there are uh, some jobs that are more highly skilled than others, yes, right? Where you later. have to, to mm-hmm. be trained in a variety of different tasks. And so I, I do think that um, we see challenges on both what I would consider sort of that labor side of the house, as well as on our more highly skilled positions as well. So I see, at least for me, I see where you're, I think where you're heading with it, but I think that there are some, uh, challenges and, and opportunities in, in both, in both spaces really. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I think talent and labor, I mean, I think there's a difference in the fact that there's some positions that are more skilled in the fact that you're using your hands and you've had to learn an actual skilled trade versus, you know, having that strategic, maybe that innovative, that creativity to bring to the position that you're working with. But I think talent kind of is that overarching theme for that, right? And the fact that it kind of touches everything on both sides of the coin. Heidi, what do you think about that? I mean, you guys in maritime have a lot of skilled labor, we do, and it's really interesting. I think it's a really interesting topic for discussion. Um, in terms of what we see, I suppose, because we're spanning so much, it, it again, it, I suppose it comes down to your definition, um, because we're looking very much as well at the seafaring community. So when we're talking about the supply chain from the maritime side of things, you're looking at, at the seafaring from cadet level all the way up. They have their own particular challenges, the ports and terminal side as well. I think when it comes to talent shortage and labour shortage, though, at the moment, we're seeing pretty similar representation across 
both. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's more just attracting people in um, to, to something that, as you've said, they might be unaware of until you have something like a ship stranded in the Suez Canal and perhaps your Nike trainers aren't going to turn up for Christmas, in which case suddenly then we're all over the news and, and not for good reasons. Um, but it's, you know, so I think that it's about general awareness raising and, and doing a lot of work. And as you rightly said, starting that work earlier to get people aware of, of what's going on in terms of how their goods are being shipped. And I know here in the UK, for example, we have a Maritime Skills Commission now. So actually what we're trying to do is get out and educate actually at school level to try and raise that awareness. And obviously that's very much a longer term programme. But yeah, there's so much more that or needs to be done on a broader scale, I think. Well, and there's so much opportunity in this industry. I know I've traveled so much by just having a job in this industry. And a lot of times, even in my Woman in Supply Chain series, they talk about having the opportunity to go and live and work in a variety of different countries, which I think is often very missed when you look at this industry and how attractive it can be. So, Guthrie or Bryant, anything to add here? Uh, well, not exactly on the point you just mentioned, Sarah, but, uh, you know, I was thinking about the differentiation you made or uh, asked about talent shortages versus labor shortages. And uh, they are same in some uh, uh, some ways, but different in others. Okay. The only reason I say that is because probably um, the reason why these shortages are occurring in the first place, I think that would be the uh, differentiating factor. And uh, I see, you know, a couple of reasons behind it. It could be the generation change. It could be the the new job realities, you know, the new way of work, how will we work, the COVID policies, office, home, hybrid, and how it varies in, you know, um, uh, factories and uh, in general work atmospheres. The cause uh, you know, the change, uh, which, you know, the changes I've mentioned, I think these are the differentiating factors between talent shortages and labor shortages, if that makes sense. And how we see it probably, you know, uh, could could help us uh, if, we, if we deep dive into what is exactly causing it and then look into uh, how we can, you know, make it work, probably we'll, we'll work around it. Absolutely. And thank you for that. I think so this um, episode, we're talking about retention. So I do want to talk about hiring practices, because I feel like that's where it starts. And Meredith, I'm not going to pick on you, I promise, because you're the HR professional on this panel. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think we do need to talk about this, because a lot of times we're putting out information in a job description where we're just not going to be able to potentially find the cha- the talent. I've had discussions where you can teach skill, but you can't teach some of the um, other, you know, maybe experience or maybe um, EQ quotient of a person to bring talent on. Um, so what do you think about that? Meredith, I'm going to come back to you. I'm going to ask Bryant first. Because I, I want to hear from you as to the fact that, you know, when you're when you're going for a job or you hear or you hear about a job description going out to the market and they're asking for all of these different things and you're kind of like, are you really going to find somebody? I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't come to it from the HR perspective. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a communications boy and I was not a supply chain boy. I you know, I laughed earlier when you said you fell into it. I'm like, oh, I totally fell into it. I, 
I, I did like PR and communications for like big food and beverage for years. And then the, the uh, pandemic, that was not my industry's time. And so, yeah, I, I fell into supply chain. And, you know, I, I think sometimes about people like me, you know, the storytellers. And I mean, I don't know if I would have ever, if I hadn't fallen into this, I didn't see myself in this. I didn't see anybody who looked or sounded like me in supply chain. And I still don't. And when I look at like, you know, job recs for, you know, in our industry, I, I'm in the industry and I still don't see myself in those roles at right. all. Yeah. Well, and that's why I wanted to ask you, what was it from that job description when you decided to apply for that position that you were like, yeah, I'm going to try this out? No, no. I had a friend who basically grabbed me by the neck and dragged me through it because, <laughs> because I was that apprehensive about it. Um, and it's hilarious because like, I love what I do and I can't believe that is what I do. And I love telling these you know, supply chain stories, especially of disruption. But I mean, if you had told me this, you know, two and a half years ago, I would have never believed you in a million years. Well, and you do a really great job of storytelling and kind of bringing supply chain into, you know, other industries or analogies that people can actually relate to. I can't remember what that article was. That I, you I know which one it over. is. Huh? Um, so <laughs> I wrote, uh, when Taylor Swift released her re-record of the red album, um, I wrote 13 reasons why, uh, Taylor Swift did not co cause the vinyl record supply chain shortage. <laughs> um, because she was be she and Adele were being blamed for the vinyl record supply chain shortage. And as a Swifty, I, uh, argued 13 reasons why she did not do that. I love that. But just this conversation goes to show you, you know, who we're reaching and who we need to talk about supply chain to and how we need to make it so much more relatable. So I'm so glad you shared that. What, what's hilarious is that that is uh, one of our most popular assets for our work. And like, I think I'm like a number four Google result on that nice. particular article. So it's like, Hire the gay pop culture boy to do your supply chain uh, comms. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, Meredith, I'm going to throw you into the fire right now because you are the HR professional. And I have, I have some thoughts. Um, I'm sure you do, too. I think that HR obviously plays a huge role. And they are hiring for different parts of the business, which I get. But I also think that sometimes they don't really understand the position potentially. I, I could be wrong. <laughs> and I think we just need to change the way we think about the people that we're hiring and the, jo the job descriptions that we're, we're putting out there. I mean, I'll use myself as an example. I did not go to post-secondary. I didn't go to college. I didn't go to university. I got a diploma by correspondence for international trade. I got some certifications and a variety of different things while I was trying to figure out what I was good at, what I wanted to do. And I did all of that while getting experience working at a freight forwarding company. When my dad closed his doors, nobody would hire me. And I mean, look at it now. Look what I've been able to build and what I could have built for a company had I had had I given the chance just because I may have not hit the diploma qualification or whatever. So I'm throwing it out to you to sort of find out what we need to do, what we need to change, how it works right now. 
Yeah. So I, I think that uh, what you're speaking to is, again, another way that I try to talk about why uh, building an, an intentionally diverse team is important and is part of the culture that we're looking for. So, uh, you know, we are not ones who are trying to uh, check a box and hire in a certain type of quota or, you know, kind of candidate. Because I think to y'all's earlier point, if you're hired for that reason, you're probably not going to fit into the culture and it's not going to feel right to you anyway, and you may end up leaving. So that's sort of not the way that we think about it. But instead for me and what I tried to uh, talk to all of our leaders about, and, and, you know, a lot of the conversation in the space for us is about trying to get a team together that have different backgrounds that come from different places in the world, right? So uh, my, my quick analogy, and I'll, I'll try to make it relatively fast, but you know, we do a lot of college recruiting, which I'm a huge college recruiting uh, fan and bringing in that next generation of, of college graduates is important to us. But if we always go to the same university and we yes. always get people who graduate from the same class and you know, Professor Smith taught them how to think in order for them to pass the class, and they all come together and then a customer gives them a problem and you've hired five people all from that same you know, place, that same university, they're all going to think about that customer problem in the same way. Whereas if we had that same group of five people and we had you know, maybe one person or even two from, you know, Professor Smith's class. And then we have somebody like you who, uh, you know, worked in freight forwarding. And then you had somebody who came from the floor and had driven a forklift for us for 15 years and somebody else who, uh, you know, used to work at Walgreens and, and, you know, was a, a manager there and a supervisor of people. You put those people together, they all have a different way of thinking about something. And so then when your customer brings you a problem, when it's presented to them, they're thinking about it in a different way. So that's about how we drive our diversity of thought and more innovation for our customers is trying to be more intentional about every individual team having a diverse group of people that you're hiring in. I love that. Brian, I'm going to come to you in just a second. Um, But like blended is kind of an example of that, this blended podcast, because I bring and just think about the quality of conversation that you're going to have when you do that. If anybody has listened to a blended episode, there's magic that happens on every single episode. And it gives you a glimpse actually into what is is possible. I'm a little biased, but I think (laughs) Brian. Yeah, so I love hearing what Meredith talked about how, you know, they want to have different voices at the table. But what I think is, you know, something I'd love to just know, you know, what is what is Meredith doing is that, um, you know, how do we make sure those two Ivy Leaguers that from that from Professor Smith's class don't have the loudest voice or that other people, you know, the forklifter, somebody who came from that path, make sure that they know their voices as important and they don't just sit back like, as somebody who's not the supply chain boy and not the HR boy, I almost feel very fish out of water in this conversation. And so how do we make sure that, you know, yes, let's have diverse voices, but how do we make sure that they know they're important and as loud? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And it all seems for me to come back to that some of that culture work that we try to do. And I mean, we do training around um, unconscious bias and, dri- and driving diversity. We have um, allyship groups and work that we do about how to be an ally, how to amplify other people's voices. What does that look like? And, and we give examples of if you're sitting in a meeting, how do you actually pull out from each of the voices where if you do have somebody who tends to um, dominate the conversation, or if maybe there's somebody who is at more senior level and everybody's kind of quiet, 
what could you do? And how do you, you know, so we, we try to talk about tangible ideas. You know, one thing that would, would tend to come up is, let me just say, hey, hey, Sugathri, what is it that you think about this, right? So you can call on and ask somebody. You can, uh, you know, we have had uh, people say, one of the things that they do is they would ask a question or pose an answer and have everybody give an opportunity to write it down, give people mental time. So if you're an introvert or you process things sort of internally, give them the opportunity to do that and then systemically go through and listen to the voices in, in the entirety of the room, right? So I think there are ways to try to structurally have a meeting or help to just as you interact to try to ensure that everyone does feel heard and that everyone does feel included or Sarah, to your earlier point, accepted. That's a big piece of the culture that we try to drive. And that is a lot of leadership behavior. And that's not necessarily something that everyone knows or recognizes. It's not something I knew or recognized until I did this work, but as I've learned it, when you know better, you do better. So you have to help to teach people and help them to understand reasons why that might be important and help them to know that you could potentially run a meeting in a different way. That was such a great question, Bryant. And Meredith, such an amazing answer because those are all really great tangible ways that people can use to retain the talent, which is what we're talking about today. So if you were not taking notes during that, I would rewind this and go back to what she said and write everything down. Heidi, over to you. And actually, while I also wanted to ask you, is in your work in diversity and inclusion as well, is there something within hiring that we should think about when we're looking at resumes? Because there's a lot of bias that comes with names or, or you know, women back to work or different things like that, gaps in a resume. Um, so I know you, wanna, you want to uh, jump on what Meredith was saying, but I also want to hear from you in that perspective as well. I think no, there's so many different ways you can sort of like address this. And I think it needs to be addressed in lots of different ways, because the other hat I wear apart from diversity study group is I actually work in maritime recruitment as well. So, so much of what you're saying is resonating with me as to, to what we're seeing or what we're not seeing um, in terms of it. And the other thing as well, what you said, Sarah, you know, in terms of you didn't go beyond a certain level of education. I'm exactly the same. Um, you know, I think if I went to go for a job and I, what Brian said as well, that really struck me. He said, look, I feel quite uncomfortable in the room so do I um because I didn't get that higher level of education so I've always had that as almost a not a chip on my shoulder but because I'm a bit concerned that I haven't achieved the same as other people so I think one of the things that I'm learning through all of these really open discussions is we all have that and when we do the inclusive leadership training we always start with a if people don't seem to feel like they're aware, it's, well, you know, you want to talk about a time you've ever felt uncomfortable or perhaps not accepted or not able to speak. And I think all of us at some point in our lives, what you tend to find is someone has had that. And that's how you can start addressing some of it from that way. So absolutely, I think you're brilliant for talking up about it, both of you as well. And that's encouraged me to say something which I don't normally say as well. Yay! I, <laughs> yeah. This so, is the magic I'm talking about, people. Um, so I think the other thing, though, for me, when you're looking at the hiring, and I will come back to that resume side of things, a lot of this gets put on HR, and it's not an HR issue alone, because we deal in recruitment so often with line managers as well. And it's the line managers who have the pressure. They're not thinking long-termism. Their pressure is they have a job, they need it filled, they need it filled. Usually yesterday, we don't plan ahead very often when we recruit, 
And that need means that they go to their safe zone and their safe zone is skills, experience. I know what does well. I'm going to recruit more of the same. I'm not suggesting that's right, but that's a real challenge that has to be overcome with the support of HR, along with the line managers. So I think there's a lot here about making sure people are aware of what they need to be doing to support the change why it will help them ultimately, because it might take them longer to get that person up and running, but actually what's the benefit to them now in the future? And, you know, not just addressing it from a short-term point of view. Um, I think it's about, as, as we've already said, making sure that we bring out the best of people in the team so we can understand and get everyone speaking up. Um, and actually going back and looking at the job. So before you even start getting the resumes, well, what do you actually need in this job? If you've got a team of four people already and they're all doing that job and you're looking for a fifth, what are the what are the other attributes that could actually really work here? What could yeah. fit with your team? And we go back to what we talked about before with the business objectives. So if when we're looking at the business case for this, actually what could be not even add value, you know, in that respect. So not necessarily be a culture fit, sorry, but a culture add. So we've got to try and get people to change the way they're seeing what they're looking to do. I think that's a real key. And then, yes, with resumes, I think there's so many biases. There's the education, nationality, the company they come from, people's gender. We've, from again, with my recruitment head on and, and personal experiences as well, and I've had when I was sort of like, if you like, on the front line, you see it coming from all walks of life. And literally, there are people still out there who, who are putting an ism on something where there shouldn't be an ism at the end of it. So I think we've really got to start calling it. And it that can't just be HR because they just, with the best will in the world, really good HR. Yes, they can really facilitate change. But quite often, particularly in the smaller companies, they mm. don't have the authority. So I think yeah. that's yeah. where it comes from. Very true. And so many great tangible takeaways there as well. I, I can I can hear people's pens on the paper right now. Sugathri, did you want to add anything into this conversation? I see you nodding feverishly, like Brian earlier. I had a lot of points, but let me get started with what just Heidi mentioned about, you know, recruitment and uh, how it just can't be on HR's shoulders. That's the point here, right? Usually it could be HR, HR or the manager, but I think recruitment should be a joint effort. Uh, not only the manager who is responsible for hiring, but why not include uh, the team members? Because ultimately it's them who's going to work with whoever is going to get hired. So, you know, once you have whatever job description or resume put together, uh, the manager and the HR, if they run it by the team, who's going to work with, then probably they could throw more ideas into it, you know, find better ways to rephrase some of it. That way, whoever is coming in you can fit into the culture better and continue working for the company and might have better talent retention. And also the other point I wanted to make is most of the HR teams in general, I think, uh, Meredith, correct me if I'm wrong here, um, I think your idea or what you said uh, gave me the start they go with trusted recruitment partners, right? You know, you have a trusted recruitment partner in terms of whether it could be a university or whether it could be, you know, a resource. And it's, uh, I very rarely hear uh, uh, people like Meredith say like, you know, hey, you know, let's go and find someone from another uh, college because 
everybody who is coming from professor professor smith's class would be ha- would be having similar thinking so that sort of risk mentality in the hr space we don't see that much often and i think uh, we as a community should put that out there and have more risk um, uh, appetite for more risk in terms of recruitment in general well and places that you can go right i mean you're saying you know um uh, increase the risk, but at the end of the day, is it really risk or is it just a little bit more work? I think a little bit more work is right. what I would say. And that's what exactly Meredith is doing with her firm and with her role. And yeah. probably should get the same thoughts running in the other, uh, um, organizations as well. Yeah. And so the next thing I want to talk about is unconscious bias, but I want to go back to what you were talking about, Sugathri, because you were talking about bringing the team in to be part of that recruitment process. And I wonder by doing that, do you think that, I mean, I don't know if we'll completely eliminate it, but will we reduce by bringing the team in to that conversation and that um, uh, to what we're doing as far as recruiting that particular person for the team, do you think that we will reduce unconscious bias by bringing the team in and having the different thoughts of the team in where the gaps are and who we're looking for, et cetera, et cetera. Hundred percent. If we, I mean, let's say we, if we can't eliminate risk, the best we could do is probably whoever looks at those resumes. I think they will double check, triple check everything before they put their you know final verdict out there. Having that sort of team involved uh, uh, puts us in a position where we want to make sure whatever we say out there is 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 you know is valid and not biased, and in that itself is a big change. Interesting. And so we're talking about retention and unconscious bias plays a role in a variety of different ways. When you're having a conversation with somebody about their role or even in the fact that there might be some tension, right? Or two people having a disagreement about something within an organization that has to be uh, navigated through uh, because everybody's got different perspectives. Everybody's got different unconscious bias. And so we're going to deal with that right? Whether we like it or not, I think we're going to deal with that. And it's a big part of retention because if somebody feels like they're being biased against, they're going to leave regardless of that that culture that we've been talking about. And so how do we navigate through unconscious bias to really help in the retention process? Who wants to go first? It's a big question. I know. We got to unpack it. I get it. Who wants to go first? (laughs) Okay. Bryant. No, I was I was coming off you to say I think we all want Meredith to start that. <laughs> <laughs> Meredith, you're up. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to let other voices be amplified. Do you see how I did that? Yeah. Uh, I and truly, I'm interested in what uh, you know everyone has to say uh, about the topic in general. So, I mean, I, I think that as HR professionals, um, the unconscious bias the the most important thing, I mean, we, we do, we do a lot of training on it. Uh, honestly, one of the things, one of my biggest uh, things that I've been working on all year long is getting 100% of our leadership through an inclusive, uh, we call it an inclusive leadership program. And one of the pieces of that is about unconscious bias, because the thing about unconscious bias is we don't know about it, right? It's unconscious. And so it's something that's just sort of, you know, within most, and, and many people walk into it and think, that they don't, I don't have any biases. I'm not biased against anything. And we try to teach everyone that, no, we all have it. Like that's how we're wired. That's how humanity works. Um, Otherwise you wouldn't have, 
you know, driven home successfully because you're, you know, not paying attention. Yeah, there's a lot of things that you do with your unconscious mind. So we teach, teach you that you have to know what that is and trying just giving the awareness of that is for me kind of that first step, right? Because again, many people, especially if I could say, I mean, many people in the supply chain industry aren't well educated on that. And I, I certainly know and understand that people can say, no, I don't, I don't feel biased. That's, that's not me. Um, and you know, I, I understand that, but you, as you learn, we all have biases and it's important. And certainly in hiring practices, that's a critical, um, piece to be able to know and recognize when you might have an unconscious bias. And so for me, you know, kind of recognizing it would be the first step. And then the second step is being intentional about your decisions around it, right? So yeah. again, if, if you know, the, the question earlier about does bringing the team together help to, to mitigate some of the, I mean, honestly, it kind of depends. I mean, if you have a team that all thinks the same, probably not going to help, right? So if, you're, if you have all the Professor Smiths or whatever, they all have the same background, they all think in the same way, and you bring them all together, it's really easy to go down the groupthink path and get to that same answer, right? Where everybody thinks the same way. But if you are more intentional about what your team looks like that comes in and you think about who is your hiring panel and making sure that your hiring panel is representative of people who all don't come from the same background and do think in different ways, then I do think bringing a team in would be helpful. And I do think that would help to mitigate some of that unconscious bias. And I think the awareness that it exists and what it might look like, um, you know, is, is a huge and hugely important step. I, I tell a story. I have somebody who works on my team. When I interviewed her, I mean, we could not shut up, right? We were just howling with laughter and just having a fantastic time. And we just, boy, we connected. And I'm thinking, holy moly, she's just like me. She's going to be amazing, right? And at the time, I hired her a long time ago. At the time, I didn't recognize, well, she's just like me. That might not be who I, in fact, want. Now, she's been <laughs> successful, and I'm thrilled to have her. Uh, but I, I want to now look for somebody who has the qualities I don't have. So they can be like, Meredith, you don't know this, but I know this. And let me help you see this in a different way. Yeah, I love all of that. And I think awareness um, and the um, training is something that we need in all industries, not just yeah, really sure. supply chain. I mean, supply chain, we're, we're kind of all from supply chain, minus, minus Bryant. Um, and now you're in supply chain. You can kind of see what we're all talking about. Um, but I think it's, it's really important for all industries, right? And so I have a question for you before we get to everybody else. If you do have a scenario of unconscious bias or bias within the workplace, what do you do? Because either that person isn't going to come and talk to you or talk to the person and they're going to deal with it and then leave potentially because, you know, or they come and talk to you about it. And then what happens? Like, what are kind of the next steps of kind of dealing with that unconscious bias or bias, conscious bias? I mean, I think that's, again, another when you know better, you do better, right? So there have been certainly times in my career where I have said something or done something that somebody came to me and said, you know, you hurt my feelings. I didn't like this. I didn't feel great when you said this. Yeah, yeah. And for me, the best thing that I can do is go, oh my gosh, I'm so, I, I, did, I didn't realize, I didn't recognize, I'm sorry. I'd take accountability for that and then change going forward, right? Yeah. So I, you know, in the future, now I've learned that. 
and hopefully I can do better in the future. Right. Cause I don't think, and, and I think that's what so many people, you know, kind of dance around and are scared of, and I don't want to say the wrong thing. And I mean, we've all said, I've said the wrong thing. I say it kind of all the time. You know, I learn when I say it wrong to not say it like that and to say it in a different way. And so hopefully if people can have that culture of feedback where it's okay for me to say, Sarah, in that meeting yesterday, when you mentioned this, I just totally shut down because it just totally upset me. And I'm sorry, I, I never responded again at the at, at all. And the reason for that was because, you know, it, 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 I have, it hurt my feelings and I felt excluded, whatever it was, right? Yeah. And if I can say that to you, Sarah, and then Sarah, you say, I'm so sorry. I didn't intend to do that. I see where your point is. I, I didn't recognize it now, but I really appreciate the fact that you came to me with that. And in the future, how can I address that better? Right. And then you yeah. actually address it better then I think yeah. you would be in a better place. Yeah, it's happened to me. I've done it and I've shared my experiences on on past blended episodes as well, but having that culture of feedback. And then I think there needs to be grace on both sides because nobody's perfect. Um, and then I think there needs that to be that accountability. And then again, on both parts, you know, learning from that particular experience. Bryant, have you dealt with, have you left a company because of anything to do with unconscious or conscious bias? Have you experienced it? What does that look like? How have you dealt with it? <laughs> so I, I, I always, it's, it's a weird conversation to talk about unconscious bias against me because I am a white cisgender man. So like, I recognize what that privilege looks like. Um, but I'll tell you, uh, the things, there's two things that, you know, it's probably why I'm here. You know, I, I am a queer gay man. And so I also, and this people probably, you know, this isn't, you know, what you immediately think of. I'm also very Southern and I've had unconscious bias, probably more on when I open my mouth and I sound Southern then when I, you know, people find out I'm gay, I'm queer. Wow. And that's a really weird thing um, so because weird. people think I am stupid the minute I open my mouth because I have an accent. No. And yeah, no, it's it's a very real thing. Um, and it's so interesting as Meredith was talking um, that um, what I thought about was what I need is I need somebody to say, oh, like somebody else who maybe isn't othered in the way I am to speak up for me and to say, oh no, like you need to listen to Bryant. He's actually rated his job or he's going to help you tell these stories. And it's almost like this snowball effect happens when one person finds out, oh, he's not stupid. It can kind of snowball that way. But I, I've had more unconscious bias against my accent than probably being gay. Wow. See, and this is, thank you for sharing that story. Because at the end of the day, how many of those people actually realized what they were doing and what that actually meant to you and that they were actually doing it? Yeah. And, and if there's a weird pause, it was because my Mac tried to take over during our conversation. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> oh, good. And how do you, so other than somebody else speaking up for you, is there another way that you have had to address any sort of bias, conscious or otherwise, in, um, in a workplace where it yeah. has worked or maybe where it hasn't worked? Yeah, absolutely. So I think about, um, I worked for about four years for one of those really like cool tech companies that you think is going to be really progressive and diverse. And I, and, and I contrast that with, 
I worked for JP Morgan Chase for the first 10 years of my career. So like a big stodgy bank. Um, when I was at the really like slick tech company, I was discriminated against for being gay so often. Hmm. And it was so uncomfortable. And, and what happened was I remember going to HR a couple of times and they very much brushed it off as like, oh, these were good old boys being good old boys. And they were darlings of this company. And so nothing was done. So of course I left. Like, why would I, I don't want to have to stand up for myself every waking minute when I'm on a job, you know? But I contrast that to like, yeah, it's exhausting. Like Mm -hmm. what I have found is, especially during the pandemic, is that I have a very finite amount of energy. And when I don't spend that energy on stupid things like that, I'm more creative. I'm better at work. I'm a better husband. And I refuse to go backward, you know? That gives me goosebumps right there. If anybody is listening to this and hearing what somebody goes through on a daily basis because of unconscious or conscious bias and what it means when you take that away and you accept the person for who they are, how much more productive and creative and innovative and how much more they can bring to the company. I mean, that right there. Thank you so much, Bryant. I think that's, that's uh, podcasting gold right there. <laughs> <laughs> Heidi, over to you. What, do you. what do you think about unconscious bias, conscious bias? What can we do? What do we have to do? Um, have you been through it? What does that look like? I think so. Our, so I suppose there's two things for me here. It's one is we tend to, in the same way that Meredith was saying, we tend to when we're, we're working on like the, the training and the coaching and the advisory side, we tend to weave it into everything that we do. So we're trying to bring out. So when we're, we're running various programs, rather than delivering it as its own program, we bring it into everything that we're delivering, so that people are recognising at each stage of the process, whether it's leadership, whether it's hiring, whether it's looking at promotion, whether it's looking at pay, equity, discretionary bonus, it can creep in, you know, who's getting the work, Um, you know, so there's so many different places that it can creep in, um, that I think it's really important to address it regularly, and, you know, try and make sure that obviously that we remove it, I think, when it comes to things like the hiring and retention, we work, one of the clients that we work with has a really interesting model where they, it, it sort of aligns with what Sue Guthrie was saying um, in terms of bringing in the team, but it's not that immediate team, which then, re- you know, hopefully we're removing some of the potential. If if the team are essentially cloned, you, you're right, you don't necessarily want that team involved in the process because they'll probably go to their safe zone. Um but what um, what we've seen work really well is there's an organisation we work with and throughout their programmes, they have essentially it's like a, a mini board who assess. And they're, so they're a hiring board, they're an interview board or panel, if you like. They do the same when they're looking at people and considering them for promotion, for development, and also when they're looking at them for discretionary bonus. And that's made up of people from so you've got the hiring manager, but it's also someone from HR and another person who's part of a volunteer group who sits on that panel as well. And the reports from them are quite encouraging um, in terms of, you know, helping remove the bias. 
Yeah, I think one other thing to mention there is if you're asking for feedback, because we, we mentioned feedback uh, a little while ago in this discussion. If you're asking for feedback, you can't put people's names to the feedback. Because when the group that gets the feedback, they automatically ask, well, who said that? Well, why do you want to know? Because if you know, you're going to have bias against that person. And then you, you don't create that safe space for people to provide that feedback. And so I think, it's, I think it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? You want to get feedback from everybody. You want everybody to be honest. But then you really have to be careful as to what you do with people's names and who knows who said what, because otherwise people won't speak up. Or something's going to happen if they don't like what they said. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that feedback, when you look at it, it's sort of the, the work that's done on inclusion, engagement, and anywhere where there's that involved, the you know you gain much more trust if it's anonymous. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So Guthrie, yeah. what, what do you have to tell us about unconscious bias? I mean, you're talking to the next generation all the time. Is it something that they think about? Is it something that they talk about? Is it something that is top of mind for them or that are they seeing more or less of it, I guess? Well, uh, or have you experienced it? Yeah, uh, I think I'll cover both of it. Okay. (laughs) uh, Coming to my personal experience since I was born in a different country altogether, you know, you know, raised in India, moving to the U S I sometimes miss those subtle undertones. You know what I mean? You know, in those conversations, when sample, those are the clues for, you know, biases, or at least I feel like, you know, something has gone wrong for me personally. I've always used my HR, uh, my chief of staff as my uh, sounding board uh, for two things. Uh, You know, if I feel like I have something on some person and if I repeatedly kept seeing it, I just don't want it to be a bias from my end. And, you know, if I if I feel someone is having bias on their side, in whatever case it is, I used my HR as my sounding board and I call her up or, you know, say, hey, I have something to discuss. This is what I've been seeing. What do you think about it? Sometimes I was right that the bias, you know, the other person saw it too. And sometimes it was probably me seeing things from a different perspective coming from the culture uh, where I am. Uh, So in either ways, uh, you know, having that sort of validation helped me uh, or has been my mantra. And, you know, to answer your first question about how the young generation or the new people coming into supply chain are saying it, I think they're aware of it. They're seeing some sort of biases. The supply chain has been specifically a men's only club, right? You know, it's changing. However, it needs to, there's still a lot of room for improvement. So most of the struggle comes from people finding that sort of trusted mentor or a partner who they can rely on, who they can use as a sounding board. Because, you know, if I'm the only female in that group and, you know, I'm not super comfortable going and talking to my boss and, you know, uh, or anybody in the team uh, about a possible or a potential bias. Uh, So that's where the mismatch is happening. And I am hoping uh, with the progress uh, which is being made in women and supply chains, this sort of issues can be uh, worked out um, uh, eventually. Yeah. All in all, I think the point I want to make is having that sort of sounding board is crucial. doesn't matter whether you are in the early stages of your career, whether you're from a different country, that sort of person to lean on and validate your thoughts is very important. 
I think that you just brought up a really great point because we've been talking about other people's unconscious bias and conscious bias, but I think that there's an accountability and responsibility for each one of us to also be aware and take into, take into account our own bias. So your approach was fantastic, right? Going there, speaking, talking it out with somebody and being like, is this me? Is this something that I'm seeing that I have bias with? that at, before you put it on the other person. But I think the other thing that you said about not talking to your boss, I mean, unless you've seen some signs and things like that, you do have to give them the opportunity, mm-hmm. right? Because otherwise that's also your bias. Um, and so let's, let's talk a little bit about that. How do we take accountability for our bias or how do we, um, how do we talk to leaders in industries to give them an idea of what, to look out for and what does that look like? Because at the end of the day, it's up to the person to be able to say, yes, I don't feel comfortable, et cetera, et cetera. However, it's also up to the other person to be like, oh, hold on, wait a second. I, that, that might be my bias, right? Anybody? Bryant. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 you know, as I talked about unconscious bias against me, I think that that is absolutely a two-way street and something I think that anybody who's been othered in their life, you know, whether if it's you're a woman, you're queer, you're, you know, a different skin color than, than, than white. Um, I think anybody who's been othered, we constantly ask ourselves those questions of, Hmm. you know, did I get, do I have an unconscious bias against that person because of X, Y, Z? And I will tell you, it is, terrifying when you have to come face to face with yourself and admit that. But then, you know, it's that whole, you know, you know better, you do better. And I don't mean that as just a, a, an Oprah mantra. I definitely believe that. And, you know, I think it's worth facing that fear of, oh God, I do have an unconscious bias against somebody. And how do I actively fix that? So um, I definitely think anybody who's been othered, we, we, we hopefully do this all the time. And try to be better about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Meredith or Heidi? Meredith? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, I, in my experience, you know, a, a lot of what we're talking about is, is the uh, good old boys club or the, you know, white male leader who sort of doesn't necessarily understand what it feels like to be othered or to be in a room that, you know, feels a little different. And, you know, it, it, Brian, I feel like you may be very good at this because that you, I, I can sense your connection to people. Um, for, you know, when I've talked to, so if you want to talk about furthering women in supply chain and you talk to a, a male and, and you think in your mind, well, he's just going to have no idea what I'm talking about as a woman in supply chain. But then you're like, any chance you have a daughter? who's going to go into the workforce anytime in the future. And what, what experience would you like for your daughter to have when they go in the workforce? Do you want them to feel like they're included if they walk into a room and like they belong? Or do you want them to walk in and go, Oh my gosh, I can't talk to anybody in here. I'm so uncomfortable. This is awful. I can't wait to quit. Right. And when you can connect with people and help them get some, they have somebody in their life that they want to have a positive experience. And it, they maybe there's a daughter or a sister or a cousin or a mother or an aunt or a female friend or someone, right? So if you're, again, just giving the example of a, a woman in supply chain kind of challenge, I mean, we're trying to 
increase our overall representation of female leaders. And it's not an easy thing to do in an industry that doesn't uh, have a lot of people coming up. The, you know, I mean, it's just a, it's a, it's a different makeup. Um, but if you can help them to connect to themselves, right. And to make it a bit of a personal um, experience and they can understand, uh, you know, what would that feel like for my daughter to walk into this room and, and would she feel welcome when she, you know, graduates from college and gets her first job. It's a great way to connect into them. So I, you know, I think that there's just a, a way to make it personal because these these topics that we're talking about are personal, right? And it's yeah. about who you are and and feeling welcome and feeling like you belong at a company. I mean, that's personal all day, every day. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like the fact that even if they don't recognize it in themselves, a way to really bridge that conversation <laughs> is to bring it back to, well, do you have a daughter and what would you like to see for her, you know, or potentially, you know, all the other uh, diverse topics um, and, you know, diverse people that could come through the ranks just to bring it back to their family. Maybe they have a cousin, right? Yeah. Maybe they have an aunt or an uncle, you know, somebody in their family that they could potentially resonate with and to just sort of show them that bias without kind of showing them that bias and just being right. like, wait a second, let's be a little bit more, more intentional with our thoughts. Well, and if you find people who are uh, leaders in this space, they often have a why behind that. And it often is a family member of some kind or some or their own personal experience, or they have a reason why they uh, might be passionate about it. Or, and, and it's a good, it's just a good connector for people. True. Anybody else want to jump in here before I move on to the next one? Heidi? No? I think, I mean, I think it's been pretty much covered. I think you're right. I mean, the number of men I talk to who go, oh, yeah, no, the reason I really want this is because I've got a daughter is unbelievable in terms of in the leadership. Um, the only thing I was thinking that goes with, along with everything, all the really valid points that raised is just promoting the conversation and the communication in the workplace. Because I think also the more people talk about their own personal experiences and share their perspectives, the more it opens up the other people's minds around them. So I think it's also, it, it, it's not the directly tackling the unconscious bias that way but I think it plays a really vital role in it is through that sharing of experience and perspectives and and just makes people think a little bit broader that is such an amazing point because if you think about LinkedIn and you think about the comment that says this should not be on LinkedIn what do you mean it shouldn't be on LinkedIn we're all here. We're all human. We all need to share our perspectives and bring our personal experiences into the conversations. And so I think, you know, I use that example for conversations that need to ha be, have, be had in organizations where you're allowed to talk about that stuff. Like I remember walking into a boardroom in my 20s and like you needed to put up and shut up and just sit there and not really say anything and laugh at their jokes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because you couldn't really talk about anything personal because it wasn't work. It wasn't work related. Things have changed. People want to be able to share. People want to talk about personal experiences. They want to bring that to work. And that is how I think we're going to get through unconscious and conscious bias and create safe spaces, which I think is huge and really important to retention. Heidi? 
Yeah, well, we're creating, essentially, we're going back to creating working communities. Yeah. And I always think back to, you know, my dad, bless him, you know, he was of the generation where you worked with organisations for a very, very long time. He used to go and hang out with those people at weekends. And okay, yeah, some of that was expat living but for him, but it was also, it was more of a community I'm not suggesting it was a particularly diverse community because it really wasn't I'm also recognized at the same time but it had more of um not a family feel but just that community feel to it and I think we went the other way in work didn't we where suddenly mm-hmm. it's exactly as you're saying we didn't really discuss anything personal you'd come to work you'd have your corporate face on you'd sit there and exactly that you know particularly if you're in the minority in the room god help you if you speak up you know you're just like okay I'm just not going to say anything um and I think we're bringing it back round a bit more so that actually yeah you're right it's getting people to open up and share and that contributes to the bigger picture so much Mm -hmm. really does yeah Absolutely. And I'm going to bring one more example before I move on. So I was watching The Equalizer. I don't know if you guys know the show, but I was watching The Equalizer the other day. And the episode that they had was of a jury room. And uh, there was a person of color on trial for murder. And they had all the jury members in a, t- uh, in a room talking about the evidence and whether they were going to convict him or not. And the show really showed everybody's bias at the table. They talked about the bias. They called out the bias. And so one person was like, he's like every other guy I've dated. So he's guilty. No questions asked. Right? And so it was a really, really good episode of getting a good glimpse into what bias means to somebody's world. Right. Whether I mean, this is a a bit of a different story as as far as like working at a company. Um, This is a little bit more life threatening, Um, but it really gave a good glimpse as to what the bias really meant to that person's life. And not only that, but to that conversation and how you can actually interact with somebody and call out bias by being respectful and understanding where that bias is coming from and reading the actual facts rather than getting all caught up in your head. So anyways, I can't remember the name of the episode, but I highly recommend you go and check that it's out. It's a brilliant example though, Sarah, because actually I've been on a jury here in the UK and exactly that, you have to just look at the facts and the evidence and it was a fascinating, I was only in it for two days, but it was fascinating. Yeah, really, Bryant. Is it weird to circle back to something from like a minute ago? No, that's fine. Go right ahead. Um, you know, I, I, I thought about what Meredith said and what everybody chimed in about, you know, it when you think about your daughter or your wife or your mom, like you you, you think about somebody in your life, you know, as as this, you know, the person on this this video, this podcast from the LGBTQ community, um, I think about when you don't know somebody or someone and how do you still care about them? So, for example, you think about uh, Black trans women who are the most murdered in the United States. And you think about their unemployment rate is some of the highest of anywhere. Most people, because the amount of Black trans women is so small, most people aren't going to know someone like that. Right. But I still need people to care about them. And you know, if we're going to circle back into supply chain, I need them to get hired and not have an unconscious bias against them. But but I can't do that, that connection. I'm like, oh, think about your daughter. Think, 
because you most likely don't know someone who checks a box like that. So I'd love to know what, what do we think about, I need you to, people to also care when you don't know someone like that. Mm-hmm. Meredith? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Always back to me. You Thank came, you. Well, no, you came off mute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. I, I agree. I think it's great. I don't know any black trans uh, women. So I can tell you that I wouldn't necessarily have that personal connection, uh, but bringing it back to supply chain and what I talked about earlier though, I would love to hire a black trans woman because probably she has a different background than the other people. Right. And thinking about being intentional when I consider building a team, I want a team that has different backgrounds. Right. So certainly not everybody is the right fit for every job. And, and you, you do have to find people who have, you know, the right overall skills. Um, but in, in general, if you can be more intentional and consider that, I, I think it would be a fantastic way to try to, drive more innovation with your company, right? So I think there's a lot of different reasons behind the business case for what we're talking about, you know, the, ret- the retention of diverse talent. And there's, there's I, I refer to it as the business case behind it, right? So I think somebody said earlier, it's the right thing to do. It's, you know, socially and morally the right thing to do. And, and I love that some people might feel that way. For me, I hate that argument because what I think is the right thing to do and what you think is the right thing to do very well may be different. And the right. concept of diversity is that we should respect what that looks like, right? So I, I don't want to make the argument um, that you should hire or retain somebody who is diverse uh, because it's the right thing to do. I want to do that because it's going to help you drive more innovation with your customers and it is going to help you be more profitable. There are studies that would tell you that if you're looking to attract the next generation of people, this is something that is important to that to, to you know yeah. them when they're looking for jobs. So there are reasons why it should be important to all leaders. So one way in to a leader, it might be about you know connecting and do they have a daughter and and what that might mean to them. But there are reasons why they are all sitting in the seats that they are in. And that's usually around the fact that they're serving their customers well, right? And that they're leading their people well. And those things are helped and, and are lifted up more when you have a more diverse team. And so if you can help them to learn that and what, for me, again, the business case behind diversity is, mm-hmm. then they might care about it. Yeah. And um, thank you for that, Meredith. And Bryant, great, great, great question. Um, There is an organization. So Jennifer was just on our show on The Last Blended. She uh, owns Trans New York. And so if anybody's looking for resources, um, she does a lot of different training. Um, And then she's also got a lot of uh, trans talent that um, you could potentially tap into as well. So just throwing out that resource for everybody who would be interested in learning a little bit more and adding to your team. So thank you for that. I really appreciate that. So now what do we do? So we've found diverse talent, right? How do we retain it? And what can we do to ensure that once we've found these incredible people, we keep them? We've talked about addressing unconscious bias. And that is a big one right? But I think there's so much more that we can do. We also mentioned safe spaces, feedback being anonymous. What else can we do? Uh, Sugathri? Well, I think the top two things come down to that. I I think I would like to go back to that employment brand once again, Sarah. I think it's so important in order to keep the incredible people we have. The first step for any organization is to sell their employment brand. 
It's not about who pays high anymore. The employment brand is defined by the policies, who you hire, what sort of culture you have, and you know the um, sort of culture you promote. Uh, so just like how companies often think about their customers, they got to think about their employees' evolution as well. Um, I mean, let's just ask this question for ourselves. Like how often as a, a leader of a company would you think about your customers versus employees? I'm sure there's a mismatch there, right? Uh, but I think that's not going to fare well in this uh, new world. We got to think about uh, and keep coming back to the fundamental question of what do your employees want? How are their needs changing? They're not uh, you know, static anymore. They are changing. Uh, and with the, brand, uh, with the pandemic, I think it's just uh, going at a faster pace. Ask that question and, you know, answering that question should be an iterative evidence-based exercise rather than a one-time exercise. And um, then, of course, you know, uh, I would say the one more important part would be uh, thinking about building that future model of work, considering this question. Yeah. Yeah. The future model of work. I like that. Right. And what does that look like when somebody comes to work for you? They want to know what that journey and that path could potentially look like for them. And so it's a little bit more work on our part to be able to be like, this is this is the potential and this is what it could look like. Although journeys go like this, I think people just appreciate the fact that you're thinking about them long term versus what's in it for us right now in the fact that we're sitting here and talking about potential job positions. I think they also want to know how you're thinking about things. How does the company... Th and it's it's not just about values. It's also about showcasing that, right? And showcasing that on a regular basis that you sort of live and breathe that. Heidi, what do you think? What should we do? Again, I think it comes in at so many different places. Um, so I think when we're looking at the, the hiring, we've obviously spoken a lot to that. I think being proactive when it comes to hiring is, is quite key rather than always being reactive. Um, so, you know, we've seen one organisation who who wanted to uh, improve their gender base in one specific area, a very commercial role, which is very, very male dominated. Um, so they actually decided that they would go proactive and create the talent pool themselves. So although they didn't need to hire at that point in time, they decided to. So they, they gave dedicated resources to, to make a difference. I think on the retention side, we've spoken a lot about the culture of belonging, and I think that's absolutely critical to it. But I think also with what Sugathri is saying as well, absolutely agree. You've got to work out, you know, how do you want to address this? Who do you want to be? Keep in mind what future generations are looking for as well when they come to work for an organisation. They don't want feedback once a year or twice a year. They want it much more frequently than mm. historically we're used to giving. They don't necessarily, you know, they want to be able to get involved in projects and, and not just be siloed into a box that, that they can't step out of. And sometimes in organisations that's easier than others. Not everyone can deliver this. Um, and I think it's... Being, um, being able to be as flexible as you can be sometimes to nurture the talent that you've got. And again, that comes back to your organisational culture and it, for some it's easier to move around. Um, there's a smaller organisation we work with who have created some amazing platforms for people to share ideas, to, which really fosters innovation, but also the belonging because they have these sessions where they 
leave the hierarchy at the door, they leave the titles on the door, at the door, and it's given them an amazing insight into alternative fuels for the industry because they took a, a slightly different approach. And um, we see other organizations who are weaving, you know, inclusion and DEI and you know, the whole gamut throughout everything and empowering managers and the heads of department regionally. So I think it's also understanding it's bespoke to organizations. You've got to make it work to with your culture, but be clear on how you want to do it and what yeah, your own objectives are. That's great. And I love all of that. I mean, one of sometimes when I, I am recruiting, I guess, or bringing everybody together for a blended episode, every once in a while, I get this question, who's going to be on it? What's their title? <laughs> and I'm like, that is not the point of diversity and inclusion. So if you need to ask that question, I'm sorry, but I don't, I don't actually share who's going to be on the episode until everybody said yes, and they've picked you know, a time to be on the episode, because that's not what this is all about. Like you said, it's about leaving that behind and just having a conversation with people. And that's really where that magic happens. So I appreciate you for sharing that. Bryant, what can we do to keep talent, to retain talent and, and keep them in-house? Yeah, absolutely. So I, you know, going to kind of circle back to something that, that we talked about earlier, way back in the beginning of the episode is that I think that, um, Diverse hires know if they were hired to be the diversity hire. <laughs> I think you know immediately and you're going to leave. You know, I think about me being being a gay man in supply chain. There aren't many of us. And the way to keep me is, you know, make me feel that my difference makes a difference. Make me feel that what makes me different and the way that I think adds value and help highlight that and showcase that. And I think that that's what we need to do with anybody who could be othered is let's make sure that we know that their unique perspective is important and it's valued. And, you know, I, I think about, um, you know, working in supply chain, it can be really easy to feel left out or like you don't belong or that fish out of water. When I know that, you know, what I'm good at and the reason I'm different is actually can help me do a great, you know, job here in supply chain and tell those supply chain stories. Um, you know, I also think about, I, I kind of sit in a few industries. I'm, I'm a part of like a PR industry, also supply chain. Also, I'm in the, the part of supply chain that's more about data science. And these are all industries, especially when I think about, um, Black women, black, you know, black men and women, for example, all of those industries that I sit in are notoriously white or notoriously not black. And I think about how much further down the pipeline we have to go. It can't just be go out and hire black right. and brown people. It has to be, oh, we need to go back while they're in junior high and make sure that they know that they are welcome and wanted and here's the path here's how you get there um you know i think that letting people see themselves in the industry is a huge obstacle it's how you make people feel welcome that they're at the table but then you get me at the table don't make me feel like i'm i'm not important or that my voice doesn't matter yeah. Do you have, thank you for sharing that. Do you have an example of when a company has made you feel that way? 
Yeah. I, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, like, um, I think that, so I work right now at Blue Yonder. This is how I ended up in supply chain. Um, what I think is really fun is I am either work with data scientists who are so much smarter than I am, and or I work with supply chain people. And I am neither of those things. And I think that uh, Blue Yonder's done a great job of saying, oh, hey, like a data scientist. That's what I do all day long. I talk to data scientists. They say, oh, hey, he can help us tell our stories in the right way. And that makes me feel so good. Anytime, uh, you know, I'm on, I'm on a Zoom with somebody who's so much smarter than me, but they know that I can help them tell their story in the right way and get their message across. So to me, like, that's made me feel incredibly valued. It's why I've been a supply chain boy for two years. So um, I know that that is my personal example. It's in your blood now because nobody ever <laughs> really leaves supply chain once they get into it. I'm just saying. I, I kind of feel that, right? <laughs> for the rest of your life, Bryant, for the rest of your life, we've got you. Meredith, last but not least, what are what are some tangible things that we can do to retain talent? I mean, you have shared... And everybody on this call has shared throughout this conversation a multitude of different ways. I guess one other question is really how to get started, first of all, and then what specifically should we do? Yeah, so uh, one of the things that uh, Bryant was talking about actually really resonated with me about sort of celebrating everyone's uniqueness and making them feel, you know, welcomed. And part of our strategy, we have uh, sort of six different things that that we uh, key in on. And one of those is about celebrating diversity. So in fact, this week, kicking off today, uh, across the entirety of the globe within our global supply chain uh, organization, we are having diversity and inclusion week. And what that looks like is talking to the people who work for us and celebrating who they are in lots of different facets. So a great example of that is uh, like one of the things that I don't know, most sites do is have a potluck where you bring food that you grew up eating, right? So if everybody brings in some food, you get to sort of get a different cultural heritage and you can talk about, you know, what, oh, where does this come from? And this is, oh, my, my mama made this and my grandmama made this. And, you know, this comes deep in my family history and you can share something about who you are, right? And you can be celebrated in that way. So we we have lots of activities that are happening um, and we do things throughout the course of the year, but like this week is our diversity and inclusion week where that's one of the things that we're doing. So celebrating diversity intentionally, I think is important. Um, and another thing that I think maybe we just haven't touched on enough is visible leadership. So that's another piece of our strategy, but you know, if you start with your leaders and you, you know, and, and if you think about, you know, a hierarchy, if you start at the very top and those people are not um, interested in cultivating a culture of diversity and inclusion, you're not going to win. It's not going to, that's not what your culture is going to be, right? So mm-hmm. it, it can't just be, hey, recruiting team, you need to go hire more diverse people because it, that doesn't equate to a culture where those people want to stay and it needs to be more about let's build a culture and then people are going to be interested in coming to work for us, right? But we can't build that culture and have people interested in coming to work for us if the people at the top of the organization don't value that and don't see it as important. So, you know, example, our my, my CEO, we've had some recent um, conferences and at every one of the conferences, he has personally said, 
I don't need any more six foot four uh, guys from San Antonio who are bald helping me. I need people who think different than I do. Right. And when he says it, it just resonates because, you know, we all sort of get what he looks like and he wants somebody who's different than that on his team. And he has spent time saying, this is the culture. He has said, I need 100% of our, our leaders to be trained in what unconscious bias looks like, right? And so then that helps to filter down because it's a, a priority for everyone. And having the visible leadership to drive the culture will help you to both retain and then also attract the talent that you're looking for. Such great advice. And I'm glad you brought up visibility because that's exactly what we're doing at Blended Pledge. And you also brought up conferences. Conferences have way too many people in the C-suite or VP level. Sitting on that stage, it's too, it's just, we need more diversity on industry stages. And one of the reasons why we're not seeing a lot of that is because of the travel expenses. And so our grants are going to cover those travel expenses because you're right. Visibility is important. We need to see more people in a variety of ways on that stage. And I think it's also important for conversation. I mean, you've got to have a CEO and you've got to have somebody who's working in a warehouse and you're going to learn from that conversation, not CEO to CEO to CEO to CEO. I mean, you can learn some stuff. I'm not saying that you can't learn anything, but I think where that conversation starts to make a difference is when we see visible change. And uh, so I'm glad that you brought that up and all amazing, tangible tangible ways to get started and think about retention and keep your incredible people. So we are getting to the end of this. What is one thing that you would want somebody to walk away from this conversation with? Either taking action or thinking about. Um, I know people have been feverishly taking notes during this conversation. If they haven't, they're going to be listening to this two or three times, I'm pretty sure. So what's one thing that you would like them to walk away with this, uh, from this with. Sugathri, we're going to start with you. All right. I was just looking at all the things we've discussed. <laughs> um, I think the act of listening is crucial. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's the common theme which kept emerging in our conversation, whether it could be for, you know, for fighting a bias, whether it could be for, you know, employee retention. The fact that you are there to listen, you're open to listen and have that sort of culture of feedback is important. You don't need to have solution for everything out there, uh, but just having that streamline and the process set up for listening and, you know, being heard is, is uh, I think, an important uh, takeaway for me. Perfect. Thank you. Meredith? For me, I think it's about being intentional, right? So, again, a lot of people... Uh, might not have a lot of knowledge in this space and going out and intentionally educating you. I mean, the internet is a wealth of knowledge, right? So certainly podcasts like you're doing, there are so many things that you can do to learn uh, how to be better and to do better in the future. So being intentional about your own knowledge and being intentional about how you're interacting and just thinking about, gosh, do you have a team meeting where maybe you could do something better? Do you have an opening on your team where you could maybe bring somebody in who is uh, different than the team that you have today? Uh, do you have somebody who you could intentionally celebrate and make sure that they feel welcome and, and that they belong, right? There's a lot of those things, but just overall uh, being intentional about it. It does it, your, your company is going to have a culture, whether you do anything about it or not. But if you want to have, you know, some, some say in what that culture looks like, you have to be intentional about doing so. Love that. Thank you, Bryant. Yeah, I would 
hope and maybe challenge anybody listening to this to think about somebody that you have nothing in common with. You don't know someone personally who checks those boxes and ask yourself, why do you care about that person? Why would you care if they were on your team and what value would they bring? And it's such a challenge when, when it's not somebody that you know or someone like someone that you know. And uh, that's what I would want anybody to think about. I love that. I think even reaching out to somebody on LinkedIn, connecting with somebody on LinkedIn, getting to know them. Like LinkedIn can be such a great platform for this, right? Really just to start conversation and learn from learn from different people. Yep. I appreciate Sarah, that. If it isn't if it wasn't for LinkedIn, you and me would not have been on this podcast. So that's right. That's right. And you did reach out to me and look at where we are now. We've already done a 2121 mentorship and now you're on blended. Last but not least, Heidi, take it away. I think for me it's communication is key. Um, and that's throughout that's at, at all levels of an organization. Um, so I think that. And, and I suppose to me, it's three season where the ones I've written down, I think it's communication. I think it's having the courage. I think it's having the discussions like this where people have got the courage to really be honest and open and to communicate. Um, and then that leads ultimately to it's slow. And sometimes we feel like we're knocking our heads against brick walls and it could be devastating for individuals and resilience. One of the key words I know of the minute of comes you know, is required in abundance. But I think if you have the communication and the courage, ultimately you're helping lead to the change that we are all trying to support. Absolutely. I think my one word is grace and it has been for the last couple of episodes. We need to give ourselves grace. We need to give other people grace. And uh, I think that's super important as we navigate diversity and inclusion. It's not a destination, it's a journey and we're learning every single day. And I just want to say how much I appreciate every single one of you for showing up. First of all, there's a lot of times with these episodes, people just don't show up and take having the courage to speak your truth and speak your authenticity and participate in conversations like this. So that is super important to acknowledge, I feel. So thank you so much to Bryant, Meredith, Heidi, and Sugathri for joining me today. We certainly covered some ground. I mean, plenty of businesses do have some way to go, but when it comes to engaging with diverse talent, from knowing where to find it and how to hire it, right through to retaining talent for the long haul. But that said, the the fact that we're increasingly having these conversations shows that it is something businesses want to do better at and giving businesses resources, ideas to try, and also a safe space to have a dialogue, make mistakes, and learn from those mistakes is the most productive place to start. And once we better connect the talent to the business, it's going to result in much more fruitful outcomes for everybody. Remember, you can reach out to me or any of the guests on social media if you have anything you'd like to add to what we've talked about today. And remember to join us again next time for episode 22 of Blended, when we'll be tackling a potentially tricky topic, tokenism. It's sure to spark some interesting debate, so you don't want to miss it. And I'll see you then. Thank you, everybody, for joining me today. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah.